Well, good morning, Dunbar. It is, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be with you, um, even though this is a strange way of, of doing things. Um, I am thankful that I can at least bring the word this morning or whenever you're going to watch this to you. And thanks, many thanks to, to Wes for again inviting me in and, and sharing the word with you. I invite you to take your Bibles out if you don't have them and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to be taking a bit of a break from your series um, today, and Wes has given me the allowance to, to bring something that is on my heart and mind. And as I was reading through the Bible, as I am apt to do in my mornings throughout the year, I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and, and some things jumped out from this chapter that I thought was very relevant not only to my life and to my family's life, but I think all of our lives as we go through this strange, weird time together as we're quarantined and dealing with the things that we're dealing with. And, and so that's why I want to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so let me give you a little bit of a background and context to the, to the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. If, if you've never read it, what it is in a in great measure, it's a, it's a farewell address from Moses to the people of God. Moses has been leading the people of God through the wilderness, that wilderness, 40-year wilderness journey, and now they stand on the doorstep, as it were, to the promised land. Uh, the only issue, and it's a major issue, is that Moses is not going to enter the promised land because if you remember the story of of Moses, uh, there was a moment, a great moment, a, a very severe moment of faithlessness when Moses in anger and frustration went away from the direction of God and instead of speaking to this rock that God had given them to, to, to bring forth water, Moses in anger and again faithlessness in a moment that God described as, as not painting a picture of his holiness, Moses struck the rock instead of Speaking to it, water still came forth, taking care of the, of the thirst of the people of God. But what God said to Moses coming out of that event was, Moses, because of this act, you will not enter the promised land. I'll, I'll allow you to see the promised land, but I won't allow you to enter the promised land. And so, so Moses, what he is doing here in the book of Deuteronomy is he's writing his farewell address to the people of God. They are going forward, the next generation, if you remember the story, are going forward into the promised land, and Moses wants to remind them of some things, things that they have seen of God, how God has demonstrated himself to them through that wilderness journey. And so if you've read the book of Deuteronomy, one of the, and if, if you haven't, one of the key themes of the book is this call to remember or to be reminded for the people of God to, to look back and go, I, I want you to recall, I want you to be reminded of the things that God did. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 really is a major focus of that call to remember. And what we'll find in it, what I want to highlight for you in it, are the things of God that Moses wants to remind his people about. What I'm going to call and what I'm going to focus on, three activities in particular of God that Moses wants them to remember. Let me let me give you the three activities on the front end, and then I'll, I'll double back and hit them one at a time. The first activity that he is going to remind the people about is how God commands to bless. That's activity number one. The second activity is God tests to reveal, and then the third activity is God gives with warnings. So God commands to bless. He commands us to bless us. 
God tests us to reveal something about us. We'll look at what that is in a moment. And then finally, God gives with warnings. So let's take them one at a time and begin first with God commands to bless. Just take a look at verse 1. This is why I say this. It begins with Moses saying, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Let's just stop right there. And and the reason why I am going to stop right there is because that is where a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of people stop. That they have the, a picture of God, that God is a God who doles out do's and don'ts, and he calls us to follow them. But that's their whole picture. Now, on the one hand, God is a God that does call us to follow his commands. That's a given. God gives us instructions, do's and don'ts, if you like. He gives us commands for us to follow. In fact, Jesus himself, God in flesh, in his great commission, tells his followers to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there it is. So this theme of God calling his people to follow his commands weaves its way throughout the scriptures. But to what end? In other, in other words, what is, the, what is the end game? What does God have in mind for us when he calls us to follow his commands? Well, let's go back to our verse. Moses goes on to say that, just pick it up there, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So that's the end. God commands us to bless us. Yes, it's, it's very true as well that God commands us because when we follow his commands, we bring, bring glory to him. That is a given. But in that, God also commands us to bless us. He, he commands us so that it goes well with us. He commands us so that we may truly live and realize all that is ours in him. This, this is as true today as it was then, that God has laid out a way of life so that we flourish. Just listen to how this is emphasized in, in beautiful and expanded detail in verses 6 to 10. Just go down in the same chapter. Moses goes on to say, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God, just hear this, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. I mean, isn't that great? The, the question then, if this is the promise, I command you, follow this, so this will happen to you. You'll flourish, things will go well with you. The question then, the call of faith, really, is whether we'll believe it and live in light of it. In other words, do you believe that God has your best in mind and is leading you to that end? Or do you believe, like so many did then and continue to believe today, that, that God is a get-out-of-Egypt-only God? You know what I mean? That you can trust God with your salvation He'll get you out of Egypt, maybe get you through the Red Sea, but after that, 
Nothing. Trust him with the beginning, but don't trust him thereafter. That, sadly, is an all-too-common perception of God then and today, but it's anything but the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. What, what is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of the Bible? Well, just imagine. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Imagine if you owned a, a, owed a, a million dollars. And your creditors brought you in, and, and you had no way of paying it. And, and as you stood before your creditors with this huge debt on your life, Warren Buffett walked in the room, came in, paid the million dollars, debt paid, free to go. How great would that be? It'd be really great. And that, that's what God did for us in part. That's the God of the Bible in part. That's part of what he has done for his people. We had a debt on our life, life and lives, and we were enslaved to it, unable to pay, pay it. And he came in and through Jesus paid it for us. Praise God. That's what God did, but that's not all he did. There's more to the story. What God did for us, the God of the Bible, what he did for us, it would be like us standing before our creditors with a huge debt to pay and Warren Buffett walking into the room, paying our debt, but then inviting us into the family and then giving us his no-limit Amex card and saying, this is yours and it's yours forevermore. That's what God did for us. That's the God of the Bible. That's what he's like. He didn't just get us back to zero. He didn't just pay our debt, but he brought us into his family. He gave us his name, and he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's who he is. That's what he's done. But sadly, way too many of us have a picture of God that like he is a God who only gets us back to zero. A get-out-of-Egypt-only God. And that's where it ends. But I remind you, I remind you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I, I remind you that when Jesus fed the masses, there were leftovers. I remind you that if God saved us while we were his enemy, how much more will he do for us now that we are his children? Jeremiah writes that God has plans for you, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus when he says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied? In, in a world that craves satisfaction, that runs after anything that will bring satisfaction, do you believe Jesus when he says we can have it? If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we hunger and thirst for living in a way that brings him glory and follows his commands, do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus did come to give us life and life to the full as he said he did? Or do we believe like so many do that God's holding out on us? And the only reason why he commands us is to quash our joy. That's, that's the fight, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the tactic Satan used in the garden, and Adam and Eve bit. God's holding out on you two. God knows that you could 
You could experience something if you did this. He's holding out on you. You could be something that he doesn't want you to be. And in fact, that is true. But Satan was duping them into thinking something contrary to what was on their minds, and they bit, and so do we way too often. And and instead of flourishing, we wither. And instead of fullness, we empty. And instead of experiencing life that is truly life, we die a little bit day by day. But please hear me. If you're struggling with believing that God has your best, that he wants you to flourish, that he wants to bless you, please hear me. God doesn't only save us from something, he saves us for something. Something he has in mind for us. And and he pours his grace out on us, not only at the beginning of the journey, but in the journey itself until we enter a a better promised land. So that's the first of God's activities, that Moses wants the people of God to remember what we are to remember. God blesses us, excuse me, God commands us to bless us. Don't believe the lie. He commands us to bless us. He wants us to flourish. He wants fullness for us. He wants everything that he's created us to be. But we have to live by faith and trust that he knows better than we. And so often we don't. So that's the first of the three activities. He commands to bless. Here's the second. God tests to reveal. Just take a look at verses 2 and 3. Moses goes on to say, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, did your, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lots in those two verses. There's a theme uh, that weaves its way through the scriptures as well in these two verses uh, that I don't want you to miss. It's actually what I want to highlight most of all, but it's a a theme that for some at least, it's just sobering to hear. There there can be pushback, but but it's, it's crystal clear here, and let me just make sure that you got it. That theme is that while God leads us, and he does, in our wilderness journey, he tests us along the way. And in those tests, there will be times where where we'll be necessarily humble. Let me repeat that. There will be times where we will be necessarily humbled and reminded of how God-reliant we are for all things. We see that, like I said, from the very beginning to the very end of God's word, which, which tells us what? Well, it tells us a lot. But at the very least, it tells us that a life of following God in faith and trust won't be absent of testing times. Which means, going back to my previous point, that first activity of God, what it means is that a life of fullness and flourishing and satisfaction and blessing doesn't mean that faith-stretching times won't come along too. And again, for some of us, that's sobering. 
Because the question comes, why would God test us? Why, why would God free us from bondage and slavery? Why would he take us out of Egypt, take us through the Red Sea, get us into this wilderness journey toward the promised land, and in the middle of it, why would he test us? Well, there are a number of reasons the Bible gives, but the main one that I want to point out from our text, and you can see it in verse 2, is that tests reveal what's in our hearts. So we can see it there, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. What, what, what is the heart? When the Bible speaks of the heart, what is it speaking of? Well, obviously it's not, I think it's obvious, it's not speaking of the organ, the heart in us. It's, it's speaking of something much more significant even than that. The, the heart, as it's being used here and it's used so often in other places, refers to the inner you. The, the, the you of who you are. It speaks of your essence. When, when you go to a funeral and if they have a body there at the, at the funeral and you look at the body, you don't go, that, that's, that's my friend. No, that's the body. The, that friend is no longer there. That's, that's what the heart is referring to. What it also speaks of is the place where your true affections lie. That, that's the way it's being used here. Tests reveal that you. Tests reveal the you of who you are. Easy times don't. Only tests do. Going through any tests lately? Stupid question, right? We all are. Some of us have never been tested like we are right now. I mean, all of us, to some degree, are going through a test right now. Some, we personally, you may know someone personally that's gone through tragedy. Maybe even someone you know has lost a loved one because of what we're going through right now in this quarantine time. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of your, your relationships are strained, financially strained. You're lonely. You're sick, perhaps. So it's a stupid question. We're all being tested to some degree and to some level. So the, I think the appropriate question is, what is this test reve revealing about you? At your essence, what's, what's showing up? What's coming out? What, what fear? What hope? Tests can reveal the negative and the positive. What fear? What hope? What, what angst? What peace? What sorrow? What, what joy? What, what is going on in your heart? What's um, telling about our time currently is that everything that our world hold, holds on to as precious is being threatened. Health being threatened, finances, freedom, community. The, the trust we place on our institutions of commerce and, and education and medicine and, and government, they're all coming under attack. And many feel vulnerable and scared and anxious and humbled. There's our word, humbled. Some even feel hungry right now. Hungry for what? For what they used to have. Humbled and hungry during this testing time. And it's understandable. When the things that we pin our hopes on are threatened, we come like, become like the prophets of Baal because our gods are being destroyed. 
One of the reasons why we worry as we often do is because we believe we have a clear picture of the way our life should go. And we get anxious when something comes along that threatens it. And for many, that something has come along, yeah? The, the picture for my life, your life perhaps, many, uh, many of the people that we in their lives, it's being threatened. And when our picture gets threatened, fear and anxiety result. But here's the sweet promise. Here's the sweet promise for those of us who have been set free from Egypt. The, the, the sweet promise for those of us who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, nothing has come along that threatens the best that God has in mind for you. Nothing can separate you from it. As, as someone has said, if you are in Christ, there is nothing in your life currently that you shouldn't have. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, there is nothing in your life currently that you shouldn't have and nothing in your life that you don't have currently that you need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now, whatever test you are going through is necessary? And that right now, you have everything you need for life and godliness. So to go back to the quote, if you are in Christ, do you believe that there is nothing in your life currently that you shouldn't have? And nothing in your life that you don't have currently that you need? You have everything you need in Christ currently. And what we're going through, you and me, and some of you way, to way grander levels than I am, there, there is nothing that we're going through that will separate us from what God has in mind for us, what is best for us. Nothing. Nothing. One of the more well-known tests of the heart is seen in the life of Job. Do you remember the back and forth between God and Satan that really sets everything up? The, the book of Job opens with this dialogue in the heavenlies between God and Satan, and, and, and God brings Satan, uh, Job, excuse me, to Satan, and Satan states to God, you know what, God? You think he's a good God. You think he's loyal to you? You think he's your, your servant? Well, God, if you remove everything from him, he'll curse you to your face. Why, why would Satan say that? Well, because Satan doesn't get love. Satan doesn't get matters of the heart. And so under the sovereign direction of God, Satan was allowed to essentially take everything away from Job, and Job's response was what? Worship. In sackcloth and ashes, he worshiped God. To, to borrow from Paul, who, who 
writes this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He was ever sorrowful, yet rejoicing. We, we sing the song of Job all the time. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How? How? Well, the answer is because God had Job's heart. Because Job's trust and assurance and hope and treasure was found in God above all, Job had what was best. And that would never be taken away, even if everything else was. Isn't that the promise of Jesus to Martha? Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled and anxious about many things. Our world right now is full of people worried and troubled and anxious about many things. Even people who, who are claiming to be devoted followers of God, angst and worried and troubled. Please hear the words of Jesus to you. You're worried and troubled about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen it. What did Mary choose? Mary chose Jesus above all else. And what does Jesus say? That will never be taken away from her. Hear that promise. It won't be taken away from you. The better part, the better portion, the one thing, won't be taken away. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And tied to that question, is that good enough for you? Is it good enough for me? I was um, listening to a pastor talk about a conversation that he had with a 16-year-old girl who was going through a tough time at school. And uh, this girl was a Christian, and so the pastor is trying to encourage her with all of the things that were hers in Christ. Talking about her forgiveness and the gifts that she has and her eternal assurance and the Holy Spirit in her. Just trying to encourage her as she is going through this tough time. And the girl listened for a while, and then she finally says, but what good is any of that if I'm not popular? Now, we hear that. And we kind of smile and think, oh, isn't that kind of cute? 16-year-old girl putting such a value on popularity in school when she had everything in Christ. But don't we do the same? Don't, don't our 16-year-old yearnings for popularity just get replaced with 25 or 35 or 55-year-old versions instead? What good is any of that if I can't have the career I crave? What, what good is any of that if I can't have the marriage I want? What good is any of that if my family, my family that I so want isn't coming? What good is any of that if, if, I, if I don't receive the recognition that I so desperately deserve? What good is any of that? And so I ask, is Jesus good enough for you? Is he the better part? Something to think about. Before moving on, why is God so passionate about revealing our hearts? That he's willing to test us. 
test us in our wilderness journeys as, as he so often does? Well, here's the answer. The answer is because he's called us to a love affair. That's the answer. God, God hasn't called us to a set of doctrine, a set of beliefs. God hasn't called us to a way of life. He hasn't called us to a, a philosophy. D doctrine's important, a way of life's important, all of that. But God hasn't called us to those things primarily. God has called, him, called us to himself. Salvation is knowing God, a God who came fleshed up as Jesus. And Jesus in John 15 says, above all else, here's the most important thing I want you to give yourself to, more important than any other thing that I'm calling you to, abide in my love. Make your home in my love. Dwell in my love. First and foremost, do that first. Why is God so passionate about revealing our hearts? It's because what we need most is a, a change of heart. Because Jesus said that the greatest of all commands is to love him with all of our heart. Be because God doesn't look on the outside merely, but on the heart. God is so passionate about revealing our hearts because there are many who worship God with their lips. But their hearts are far from him because where our treasure is, so will our heart be also, because it's only the pure in heart who will see God. Because the most important question that Jesus asks of us is the same one he posed to Peter. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, in other words, do I have your heart? He, he asks us the same question. Do I, do I have yours? What, what this means then, when we consider all of this, what we've seen thus far in these three verses, what this means then is that God's protection doesn't only come from shielding us from hard times but with hard times. Jesus protects us from ourselves with them by revealing who we are and who he is and who he's working in us to be. That's meat and potatoes Christianity. That's not milk. The idea that God protects us with hard times. Why? Because our hearts matter most. Because he wants our hearts. And because it's the trials and the tests that come that reveal them. And, and, and it needs to be important for us for our hearts to be revealed. Because as we go through these times and our hearts they're not producing the fruit of the Spirit and causing us to run from to God, but run from God. That's a gift of grace. Because it corrects us, hopefully, and leads us back to Him. We, we want to know what our hearts are like. And so He protects us with them. Jesus protects us from ourselves with them. 
What this means, therefore, is that tests, in part, as I said, are God's great gifts of grace and mercy as he speaks to us by way of them. So we've seen two activities. We have one more. The first activity, he commands to bless. The second activity, he tests to reveal. And finally, he gives with warnings. The warning shows up if you drop down to verse 11 where Moses writes, Take care, lest you forget, there's the warning, forget the Lord your God. The same warning actually shows up in verses 14 and 18 as well. Three times Moses warns the people against forgetting God. How would that ever happen? They've been set free by God. They've been taken through the Red Sea. All of the plagues, the one cloud and fire through the wilderness, manna, their sandals never wearing out, their clothes never... After 40 years of that, they would forget God? How would they forget God? Why would they forget God? Well, do you know the answer? Moses gives us the answer in verses 11 to 14. They would forget God because God's blessing would cause them to do so. Let me read verses 11 to 14. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and the flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, proud, boastful, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Did you hear that? I'm warning you because there's danger that comes with blessing. I mean, you saw the list. Food, big houses, flocks and herds, silver and gold. And Moses warns them against building their trust on them. That's number one. Building their trust on them. And believing they were the reason for them. This is actually something that Paul warns Timothy in his first letter to Timothy when writing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Timothy charged the rich not to be boastful. So Timothy, you have Christians in your church who have bucks. Charge them not to be boastful. Nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's exactly what they're doing in Deuteronomy 8. Don't set your hope on them because they can be taken away in a blink of an eye, like maybe six weeks. While promising what they can't deliver. And don't boast of them because they didn't come by way of your ingenuity anyway. I mean, that's what Moses writes in verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He doesn't only give us power to get wealth. I mean, start from the beginning. He gives us life. He gives us breath every day. He gives us health. He, he gives us abilities. He gives us our very drive. In fact, God determines the time and places in which we live. He gives us everything. Boasting, boasting in our riches is like staring at the sun and taking credit for the light. It makes no sense. As the Apostle Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do we have that we did not receive? 
So why boast and act as if you did not receive it? So the question is, and I think it's a relevant question, is why then does God bless us as he does if there's so much danger attached? Well, first, quite simply, but wonderfully, because God is a blessing God. He's, he's, a, he's a good Abba. He's a good Father in heaven. He's a giving God, for God so loved that he gave. He's a giving God, and if we who are evil can give good gifts to our children, how much more than our Father in heaven. He takes pleasure in giving gifts to his children. But secondly, he blesses us to lead us to worship. Verse 10, and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's the ultimate purpose for his gifts. They are to lead to worship, to thank the giver for them. Sadly, they often lead to idolatry and a trumped-up view of self. Instead, as Bernard of Clairvaux stated, to see a man humble under prosperity is the rarest of things in the world. And so like a good father, God warns us beforehand, and when we fall prey to their danger, as we often do, he brings times that turn our hearts back to him to remind us that everything comes from the mouth of God. Everything. This seems to be one of those times, does it not? A testing time. Uh, a humbling time. A hunger-inducing time. A necessary time but a merciful time too where our Heavenly Father is seeking to turn our hearts towards Him. Either for the first time or yet again. And I pray that He does. And so as I close, and I will, and you turn me off if you haven't already turned me off already, and you continue to journey toward a better promised land, I remind you that God commands to bless. Grace upon grace, abundant grace. And he tests us to reveal. I, I have to ask, does he have your heart? Whatever your name is, do you love him more than these? Does he have your heart? And finally, he gives with warnings, worship and boasting in the giver, not the gifts. And if the gifts are taken away, for a time at least, are we able to bless the name of the Lord? Worship in plenty and worship in want. Have you chosen the better part? One last text that wraps all of this up much better than I ever could. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I I know full well that a message like this is so absolutely relevant to the time that we're all going through, but I also know full well how our flesh can resist it, how our mind can resist it. I, I think of the parable of the seed and the soils. The second soil didn't bear fruit because of sufferings and trials. The the third soil didn't produce fruit because of the deceitfulness of riches and other things. That's what we're going through. Trials and testing. Riches perhaps being taken away. Other things that we were striving after taken away. And God, I I don't want us to be second and third soils. I don't want to personally be second and third soils, but I know my heart at times can resist. I know my mind at times can resist. My flesh resists. So I pray against that for me. I pray against that for everybody listening, that that this time would not cause them to, to run from you, but to you to find their hope and their treasure in you and you alone. To choose the better part, Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, choosing the better part, something that won't be taken away. Something, something, no matter what we go for, we won't be separated from. Yes, perhaps things right now have been. And it may be for a season or maybe forever. I don't know. You know, however. And you want our hearts. You love us that much to take us through these times so that our hearts would be revealed because that's what you want. That's what you want. And what we need most is a a change of heart. And so I pray for a blessing on this message uh, because of the relevance, um, because of the meat of your word that it is, because it gives hope. Um, So I pray that that people would hear you. This is just me proclaiming. This is your word. This is your message to us. Moses is just reminding us of what you are and who you are. So this is about you, not me. It's not about Dunbar. It's not about Norm. It's about you speaking to us. So I pray that they would receive your word, that we all would receive your word, and we would prove to be the better soil, the fourth soil, through perseverance in good times and in bad, producing a harvest 30, 60, even 100 times. So help us. We can't do this in our own strength. We desperately need you to fill us, empower us, turn our affections towards you in greater and greater way. We need more Holy Spirit, a deeper love, a deeper love. Help us. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.